Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon, Dale Welcome Earnhardt in, Jr. Kirk Herbstreit is on the phone. The Air. podcast that is serving America. Air Tour Sports Podcast. Yeah. It is Monday, September 11th, 2023. People, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody enjoyed the wall-to-wall football Thursday night NFL, Saturday college football, Sunday NFL, obviously tonight, Monday night, Buffalo Bills against the New York Jets. So I hope everybody had a great weekend. Obviously, it goes without saying, September 11th, our thoughts are with all the families that were impacted so many years ago. Uh, you know, I grew up in Connecticut, so obviously, I, I, I not obvious, but I did know some families that were impacted Thoughts are always with those families around this time of year, but it is a busy Monday show and there is so much to talk about. Here is everything we are going to discuss on today's show. Going to open that incredible, incredible game in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Texas goes into Alabama and gets the 34-24 win. What does it mean for Texas? What does it mean for Bama? Oh, we are going to discuss both sides. From there, we'll take a quick break, and you talk about big wins and big losses. Well, Texas A&M takes a beatdown of epic proportions in Miami. Man, oh man, here we go again with Texas A&M. And then finally, we will wrap. By the way, we'll, we'll talk Miami as well, of course. But we'll wrap. We'll talk a little bit of Colorado taking care of Nebraska, some other news and notes from the weekend. And oh, by the way, we will wrap with the very serious topic and story involving Mel Tucker. We will discuss that. It is a surreal, unbelievable, very serious story. Uh, So we'll save that for the end. If you have some people that maybe shouldn't be hearing some of the stuff that will be discussed in that topic, uh, it'll be good for the end of the show. But busy show, jam-packed show. This is one of those Mondays in the fall. This show might go four, five, six hours. We'll see what happens. Uh, But with that said, let's not waste any more time and let's get to the topic of the day. The topic of the day, it goes without saying, you don't need me to tell you where we're going to start today's show. We're going to start today's show in beautiful Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where the Alabama Crimson Tide were ranked number three in the country, hosted number 11 Texas in Tuscaloosa. Rematch of last year. Texas could have won. Quinn Ewers gets hurt. They finish eight and five, but all off season long, there's been momentum building for Texas. There's been questions around Alabama. 
And as we said on Thursday, on Friday show, excuse me, this was a statement game for both programs. Texas wanted to prove that they've arrived. Alabama wanted to prove that they never left. And well, we got a definitive answer as Texas goes into Bryant-Denny Stadium, takes care of business, beats the Alabama Crimson Tide 34-24 to in a game where bluntly they were the better team, bluntly they were des- the deserving victor, and bluntly I was dead wrong in my assessment on this. I picked Alabama to win in cover, so I was dead wrong, but credit to the Texas Longhorns for picking up the mega victory on Saturday night. And as I break this game down, it's interesting because I always say on these big Monday shows, when there's so much at stake in college football, what do I always say? I always say oftentimes the more interesting story is in the losing locker room. And one thing we often do is when there is a big game like this and a big loss, we sometimes lead with the team that lost. But to me, the bigger story is actually Texas. To me, we Texas deserves. We Let me put it this way. Texas deserves this moment. Texas deserves that we lead this show with them because it was such an impressive moment and such an impressive game for them. In terms of the game itself, listen, what I would say is a couple things stand out. The the first thing that stands out is this. So from the Alabama perspective, I have basically my career has coincided with basically most of Nick Saban's time at Alabama. And so I'm not going to say that I was covering and, and in the stadium for all these games, whatever. But why I bring it up is I've seen most of Alabama's losses in the Nick Saban era and reacted to him, talked about him on a podcast, radio show, whatever. And I bring it up because when Alabama loses, it usually falls into a couple different categories. There's the games where there's just one player that goes supernova that beats him. Think Johnny Manziel, think Cam Newton, um, Deshaun Watson in the college football playoff. There are moments where fluky stuff happens. You know, two years ago in the college football playoff, if Alabama's two best wide receivers, Jamison Williams and John Mechie, don't get hurt, does Alabama beat Georgia? We'll never know. Georgia deserved to win that championship, but we'll never know. And then every so often, there are the moments where the team that beats Alabama is just better. Joe Burrow and LSU. Clemson when they had Trevor Lawrence and they just kicked Alabama's butt. Well, here's the thing. Saturday night was one of those moments. Texas was simply the better team. Texas was deserving of this victory. There was nothing fluky about it. No weird injuries. No weird this. No weird that. Texas just went in and took care of business against Alabama. In terms of the game itself, listen, the thing that stood out is, again, that there was nothing fluky about this. You look at the stat sheet, Texas, I don't want to say they totally dominated, but they kind of sort of dominated. They had over a, they had right around 100 more yards of total offense than Alabama. Quinn Ewers had close to 100 yards more passing than Jalen Milrow did, Alabama's quarterback. Uh, they were They were more effective running the ball, Texas was. And then most importantly, obviously, if you take out Jalen Milrow, but uh, but most importantly, this is the stat that was jarring to me when I look at the Texas-Alabama game. Texas, it wasn't passing. It wasn't Quinn Ewers. It wasn't this. It wasn't that. It was that Texas, how about this? They finished the game with nine tackles for loss and five sacks. Alabama finished the game with two tackles for loss at zero sacks. 
And so you talk about Alabama, you talk about SEC football. It's games that are won at the line of scrimmage by just having dudes that the other team can't stop. Well, Texas had those dudes at the line of scrimmage, nine tackles for loss, five sacks. And so when I look at this game, it's one thing to see it in the stat sheet. But the thing that really stood out watching that game was the size, speed, athleticism, and discipline of Texas. It's not to say that Alabama has bad players. We're going to talk about the Alabama perspective in a minute. But watching that game, Texas was every bit the equal of Alabama everywhere on the field. Quinn Ewers was the better quarterback. The skill position, guys, there is no doubt. Uh, you know, uh, A.D. Mitchell, I know he doesn't want to be called A.D. Mitchell anymore. Adonai Mitchell. Uh, Jordan Winnington. Uh, you look at uh, the um, the big tight end. I'm like Jatavian Sanders. Xavier Worthy. They got dudes everywhere, and they got dudes on the defensive front as well. They got d- dudes at linebacker, at safety, whatever. So that was the thing. Not only was there nothing... Texas looked just as big, just as athletic, just as talented as Alabama. Just a statement, statement, statement win. Now, in terms of the bigger picture, a couple things stand out. One, I'm just going to say it. We usually wait till Friday to do where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. I was wrong on two guys, and I owe two guys an apology big time. The first one is Quinn Ewers. And, and I don't think I've been mean to Quinn Ewers, I, I, one thing about me, I, I never try to be mean-spirited in my analysis or coverage, but this was the number one rated recruit in the country, the number one high school player, largely believed to be one of the greatest quarterback prospects in the history of high school football, okay? And I just hadn't seen it. I kept saying, everybody tells me how great this guy is. Everybody has him on first-round mock draft boards. Show it to me on the field. Last year against Alabama, he was great for about a quarter and a half. Then he got hurt, and I wasn't no, – be clear, nobody's rooting for players to get hurt. But after that, he wasn't the same quarterback. 56% completion percentage last year, 15 touchdowns, six interceptions. I said, show me the great. Show me the incredible. Show me the first rounder. I hadn't seen it. The first game against Rice completed 60% of his passes, no deep balls. Now, in hindsight, maybe Steve Sarkeesian was saving a lot for Alabama, but I was waiting for that moment. Well, Quinn Ewers – Here is my official apology to you. I owe you an apology big time. Everybody else was right. I was wrong. I didn't see it. I see it now. Quinn Ewers was phenomenal on Saturday night, not just because it was a hostile environment, not just because it was Bama, but some of the throws he made were unbelievable. That moon ball to, to Xavier Worthy early in the game, the touchdown pass to A.D. Mitchell that basically sealed the victory. Quinn Ewers was awesome, and I owe him a total apology. You know who else I owe an apology to? Steve Sarkeesian. Listen, Sark has obviously gone through a lot of personal stuff. Um, I think we talked about it on Friday's show. We know about the substance abuse stuff. I, I don't think that's a joke. I don't think that's funny. I'm not going to make light of it. But then Ross Dellinger puts out this piece on Friday morning about this major heart situation that Steve Sarkeesian had that if he hadn't been operated on and if it hadn't been discovered when it was, um, you know, whatever. He had to have major heart surgery, and thankful he's okay. But, man, Steve Sarkeesian, you know, I, I, listen, I've been critical of the guy, right? I have been critical of the guy. I have questioned him. I've said he's never won more than eight regular season games. I've questioned the fact that he can't close out games. Well, I was wrong on Steve Sarkeesian, too. What I was most impressed by, 
I think the early portion of the Sark era, you know what stood out? The inability to close out big games in big moments with big wins. And we talked about it on Friday's show. This was a guy that over the last two years has lost five games in which he has had a double-digit second-half lead. And so I didn't trust him. I didn't believe in him. I didn't believe that he would close things out in Tuscaloosa. But you know what happened on Saturday? He His team got out to the lead. His team was the better team early. And then when Alabama battled back, he put his foot on the gas. He didn't back down. He was fearless, and he led his team to victory. So credit to Sark, credit to Quinn Ewers. And bluntly, let me let me finish by saying this. What is the ceiling of Texas this year? It's interesting. After the game, um, I did my radio show, Fox Sports Radio National. If you've, you know, if you don't know who I am or you've never listened to me before, but I called my buddy Garrett Carr, does some college football writing for us at Aaron Torres Media. And I said to him, I said, So let me ask you a question. I said, like, Texas, now the expectation kind of like it would it be a, considered a disappointing season if Texas doesn't make the playoff? And we talked about it a little bit. I don't know that I'm ready to say that. Like, I don't think it'd be a failure if they don't make the playoff. But look at Texas's schedule. Going forward, these are the toughest games on Texas's schedule. They only play two teams that are currently ranked. Oklahoma on a neutral field, who they destroyed last year. Now, admittedly, Oklahoma didn't have Dylan Gabriel. And Kansas State at home. Those are the only two teams left on the schedule that are ranked. Oklahoma on a neutral field, Kansas State at home. Their four remaining road games at Baylor. Baylor is 0-2 right now and has lost back-to-back, has, has already lost two home games. At Houston, Houston lost to Rice on Saturday. Rice lost to Texas last week. Iowa State, they're terrible. And of course, TCU, which looked like a big loss on paper or a big game on paper a few weeks ago. Texas should be able to move the ball against them. And so it was funny. We joked about it earlier, and it's the conversation that everybody wants to have. Is Texas back? Well, you know what strikes me? Texas being back is not about beating Alabama. Texas, like for all the criticism, Texas has had big wins through the years. They've beaten Oklahoma a couple times over the last decade, even as they've struggled. Uh, They beat Georgia in that Sugar Bowl, the one where Sam Ellinger literally said, we're back. Well, guess what? Beating Alabama doesn't make Texas back. You know what makes Texas back? Going out and destroying Wyoming next week. Going out and destroying Baylor on the road. Because the problem for Texas has never been getting up for big games, even Alabama last year. It's what do you do when you're a 21-point favorite? What do you do when Kansas is coming to town and they have no business even being in the game? What do you do when Baylor has uh, is down by 10 and they're driving? Can you make plays? Can you make stops? Can you do the things that great teams do. Again, the big games are never the problem for Texas. I'll give you an example of another team. You know who was quietly one of the most impressive teams on Saturday? It was Florida State. Because Florida State beats LSU last Sunday in uh, Orlando. And then they came back and beat Southern Miss by 53 points. That is how you are supposed to handle a win, a big win, and a bounce back. And so that's the big thing for Texas. It's not about the Oklahoma game. We know they'll be ready for the Oklahoma game. It's about Kansas. It's about Kansas State at home. It's about TCU on the road. It's about Baylor on the road. It's about Wyoming next week. Fascinated to watch. Credit to Texas. But this is a team that, based on the schedule, 
they will probably be a touchdown or more favorite in essentially every game the rest of the year. Texas, it's on you. It's time. Go win the Big 12 in your final year. Go make the playoff. Get some momentum going into the SEC because that, to me, will be the statement that Texas is back. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, let's switch gears and talk about things from the Alabama perspective now. And by the way, let me say one thing really quick. If you're watching on YouTube, this happens a lot. We break off the show in clips. So if you're a Texas fan and you hear me talking about Bama for the next seven, eight minutes, and you say, why don't you talk about my team? Well, guess what? I did just talk about your team for like 20 minutes. So find that clip. Texas, as I said a moment ago, was the deserving team, deserved to win. They were the team that should have been victorious. Credit to Texas. I just talked about them. But I do want to switch gears to the Alabama perspective because, you know, listen, Alabama, this is how you know you're something special as a program. When you lose, it's still code red. It's still the worst thing ever. And when you lose, conversations like, is the dynasty dead, continue to pop up. And so I want to talk about this game from the Alabama perspective. But I'm going to do this weird thing where I'm not going to be negative I'm not going to be the sky is falling. I'm not going to be this is the worst program in the history of football. But what I will say about Alabama, I do believe that they have one big fundamental question that they have to ask themselves right now to save this season. And I think they got to make this decision quick. Now, in terms of the game itself, again, Texas was the deserving victor. Texas was the better team. Texas was the one that should have had their moment at the beginning of this show, which we just talked about. At the same time, I know that the stat sheet said that Texas was significantly better. But if you watch this game, I don't buy it at all. Remember, it's easy to forget this now. And this isn't taking anything away from Texas. They made the plays late. Alabama didn't. We all understand that Alabama had the lead in the fourth quarter, right? Like we understand that at one point it was 16 to 13 in the fourth quarter, Alabama led from there. Quinn Ewers made throws from there. There was a bad interception from Jalen Milrow. And from there, Texas got their deserved victory. 
But when I look at this game, everybody wants to make this an indictment of, oh my God, it's last year all over again. The defense is terrible. The run game is terrible. Now we don't have Bryce Young to bail us out. By the way, that was kind of my thought in the middle of the game. But as I sat back and thought about it, I don't think that's the case at all. First of all, from the defense, the defense's perspective, this is the best pass offense that they will see all year until probably a potential college football playoff. I don't buy Joe Milton in Tennessee. I don't buy Jaden Daniels, and he does. I don't buy him the way I buy Quinn Ewers and the receivers that Texas has. Um, and so when I look at this game, I thought Alabama's defense actually held up pretty well. This wasn't last year when Tennessee scored like 28 points in the first quarter. This wasn't last year when Quinn Ewers came out and was throwing darts from the first moment of that game and Texas was in complete control until he got hurt. This was a game where Texas was good early, but they had 13 points at the half. They were scoreless in the third quarter, and it wasn't until late until they pulled away. The defense did their job for three-plus quarters until they were on the field for simply too long. That's indisputable. You, By the way, you want to know how good the defense was or how let me put it this way. If you think that the Alabama defense was fundamentally just way worse than Texas's defense, here's a stat for you. Texas finished the game seven of 18 on third down. It's about 38%. It means that Alabama got them off the field. I'm not great at math, but that'd be about 62% of the time on third down. Alabama was five of 14, 33%. So they were basically the same team on third down in that game. The defense put Alabama in position to have a lead. The defense was good on third down. I thought the defense did their job. Let me also defend this. Let me defend the offensive line for Alabama as well. I think it's easy to say, oh, they couldn't run the ball. They were terrible. And the stat sheet backs it up. Three yards per carry, 107 yards rushing on 35 carries. 44 of those yards, by the way, came from Alabama's quarterback, Jalen Milrow. But as I watched that game, I didn't think that Alabama couldn't run the ball because they're incapable and the offensive line is terrible. I thought Alabama couldn't run the ball because Texas was loading the box because Texas was not scared by the threat of the pass because Texas was scared of Jalen Milrose legs, not Jalen Milrose arm. Now to Jalen Milrose credit, he made some big throws late, but it was clear. The game plan was stop the run, stop Jalen Milrow on the ground. We'll take our chances in pass coverage. So was the offense that bad and was the offensive line that bad or was it a situation where the question I guess would become was Alabama's offensive line incapable of pa of run blocking or was it a situation where Texas did not respect the pass and that made life difficult for the Alabama offensive line. Lastly, I saw this too. It's like, oh, I mean, the dynasty's dead because NIL and transfer portal has changed everything. I don't buy that at all. Now, part of it is, yes, I do think USC finally got their right coach. I do think Texas apparently has its coach. Georgia obviously has its coach with Kirby Smart. But stop with the dynasty is dead stuff. You understand that Alabama, by the way, had maybe one of the greatest recruiting classes in the history of high school football last year. You understand the year before when Texas A&M had one of the greatest classes in the history of high school football, Alabama actually had a higher star rating average. You understand in 2021, a lot of the guys that were on the field on Saturday was the number one rated class in the country. And I understand that some of those guys left, but don't tell me it's about talent. Alabama still has as much talent as anybody in college football. Now, to the credit of Texas, 
LSU, some others. They've elevated the talent, but for Alabama, it's not a talent issue. For me, this is what I truly believe, and this is what I think Alabama has to do to save their season. They have to decide what they want their offense to be and who they want running that offense. And what I mean by that is this. You watch that game. So even backtrack. What have we heard out of Alabama for the last nine months? Since Bill O'Brien left as the offensive coordinator, since Pete Golding left as a defensive coordinator, we have heard they are recommitting to power football, to the run game, to physicality, to toughness. I think that's great. I think they should. They have the bodies. They have the dudes. You don't need Bryce Young. You don't need whoever, Tua. Recommit to the run. That's fine. Here's my problem, though. Jalen Milrow isn't the guy to do that. Jalen Milrow, as I just said, is best in the open field. He's best making plays with his legs. He's elite. Now, he can throw a great deep ball, but I don't think he's good in the short and intermediate passing game. And I don't mean to nerd out on X's and O's. I'm not an X's and O's guy, but I think this is important for this moment. Is I do think if you're Alabama, this is what you have to decide. Do we want to build an offense around Jalen Milrow, a guy whose best attributes are clearly his legs and the deep ball? Or are we going to stick with what we've said? Are we going to stick with ground and pound power football? Because if that's what they're going to do, Jalen Milrow is not the right guy for that system. And so because of it, I will go back and I will say what I truly believe on this topic. Alabama has a decision to make. Right now, Jalen Milrow in that offense is a square peg in a round hole. But defenses do not fear the pass game, certainly in the short and intermediate. And I don't think you can scheme around that. And so you have to decide, are we going to build an offense around him or are we going to go with Tyler Buckner, the transfer from Notre Dame? This is a kid. He's certainly limited athletically. He's not great, but he's good in the short passing game. He can hand the ball off. There will be more balance in the run pass game, which is what you told us you were going to do from the beginning. And so I think Alabama has a big decision to make a quarterback. And let, lastly, let me say this. I actually thought the best take uh, I saw on this was from Barrett Salee, buddy of mine from CBS Sports. Like he said, point blank. He said, "I Nick Saban, I do think miscalculated one big thing. This is Barrett's take, not mine, but I agree with him. He said, Nick Saban should have been more aggressive in the quarterback transfer portal in the winter. Remember, there's a winter transfer portal and a spring transfer portal, okay? And in the winter, there were a lot of good quarterbacks in there. Sam Hartman, who's now at Notre Dame. Brennan Armstrong, who's now at NC State. Um, you know, Spencer Sanders and Walker Howard, who are both at Ole Miss. There were a lot of really good quarterbacks in the portal at that time. Grayson McCall, who ended up going back to Coastal Carolina. Nick Saban kind of pumped the brakes. Nick Saban kind of was happy with what he had. And then spring football happened. And he was like, I don't know if we got the guy here. And then from there, they started to scramble to try and find a guy. In my opinion, Nick Saban should have been more aggressive early in that transfer portal. I agree with what Barrett said, but now he's in a situation where he's got to figure some things out. So we will see what happens with Alabama. I don't think things are over, especially if you've seen LSU, if you saw AM against Miami, which we're going to talk about in a minute, if you've seen whoever. There are wins to be had on this schedule. There is no George on this schedule. Texas is actually probably the best team on the schedule. But you got to figure out what you're doing at quarterback. It's clear that you're trying to make Milrow into somebody that he's not. 
Do you want to let him do, do you want to let Jalen Milrow cook or do you want to find another alternative? That is the question for Bama. All right, so what I'm going to do, take a quick break. When we come back, boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, we are going to talk about Texas A&M losing at Miami. Quick break, be right back. All right, I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. I do want to switch gears, and I want to talk about one of the other big games. There were a few other big games. We'll get to Nebraska-Colorado later. Coach Prime doing it again. But where I want to start now is in Miami with the Texas A&M and Miami game. And a lot like Texas-Alabama, both programs kind of with a lot to prove both coming off disappointing seasons. But for Miami, it's only year two of the Mario Cristobal era. He's going to figure it out. It's just going to take some time. But for Texas A&M, this was kind of a big one, right? Last year, you go five and seven. The offense is a disaster. You finally figure it out in your final regular season game. Then you add Bobby Petrino as your offensive coordinator. And so if you listen to the shows last week, we talked a lot about this. We said, like, what if this actually works with Texas A&M? All the pieces are there. All the talent is there. All everything that you need to win. But Jimbo Fisher, it's the play calling. The offense isn't good. Then they put up 52 points against New Mexico. And I said, we spent all offseason talking about the possibility that it doesn't work. What if it does? Well, as it turns out, that was an overreaction to week one because Texas A&M not only lost to Miami on Saturday in Miami, they got boat raced. Final score, 48 to 33. And I'll be blunt, the game wasn't even as close as that score would indicate as how about this? Texas A&M was basically gifted their first 14 points, scored the first touchdown off a blocked punt, scored the second touchdown off of a muffed Miami punt. And it was actually a lot worse than the final score would indicate. And so listen, it's only week two. You don't want to overreact. But that that thermometer on on Jimbo Fisher's seat, I'm doing a little thermometer turn up on, on, on YouTube here. It got turned up quite a bit for Jimbo Fisher. Now, in terms of the game, listen, I think if you're an Aggie fan, there's so many reasons to be frustrated, and I'll just list a few. I I don't mean to be crass here. I'm just being serious. Where I would be frustrated is a couple things. One, I think the first frustrating part is that it was Miami, and that is not a a disrespect on Miami. It's not they're, they're, they're this, they're that, they're the other thing. It's that, as I said a moment ago, this is year two, of the Mario Cristobal era. And I get that Miami has access to the portal, just like everybody else. I get that they had a top 10 recruiting class last year and I get Mario Cristobal is a good coach. He's going to figure it out, but it is still only year two. And they were kind of a mess last year. They went five and seven, but beyond going five and seven, they got blown out and destroyed in a lot of those games. Mentioned it the other day of their seven losses. Five of them were by double figures were by 10-plus points. Most of their games in their losses last year were not even close. And so for Mario Cristobal in year two to dominate Jimbo Fisher in year six with all Jimbo Fisher's recruits and all his guys and all his systems in place, that is a really, really, really bad sign. You know what else is not only a bad sign, but like just an absurdly frustrating one if you're an Aggie fan? The offense didn't let you down. It was the defense. And that's the part. It's like Texas A&M fans, they just like, they can't catch a break, right? For years, we've been 
Is Jimbo right? Is Jimbo wrong? Should he be calling plays? Should he not? Last year, we decided that he can't call plays anymore. He's incapable of being a head coach at this level in this era and also calling plays. And so the offseason narrative since last, really forget December, since like last October, when they lost to App State, when they barely survived Miami at home and Arkansas on that neutral field, the conversation was like, he's got to give up play calling because they got to fix the offense. Well, the scary part is the offense is fixed. They're averaging over 40 points a game through two games. The offense, to its credit, wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. It wasn't the reason that they lost. It was the defense. The defense couldn't stop anybody or anything, specifically Tyler Van Dyke. Tyler Van Dyke, the Miami quarterback, by the way, shout out Connecticut kid, neither here nor there, but I'm a CT guy. We got to stay together. Five touchdowns, throwing the ball all over the field. And again, it goes back to what I said a minute ago. Miami's got dudes. Miami's got difference makers. But if you can't beat Miami, what what are you going to do against some of the other teams that you're going to have to face throughout the year? And I think the last thing that was frustrating is I think a lot of the negativity from last year creeped back in. Listen, last year, what was the conversation? It wasn't just wins and losses. It was the culture. It was the guys in the locker room. It was guys doing stuff that they shouldn't do. And the offseason narrative was we got rid of a lot of those guys. Now, I'm not saying anybody on Texas A&M is a bad person or a bad human or a bad this or a bad that. But I saw a lot of dudes quit on Saturday afternoon in Miami. I saw some plays late in that game where a tackle could have been made and you took a bad angle. Where a tackle could have been made if you wrapped up and you tried to throw a shoulder and the guy bounced off of it and ran another 40 yards for a touchdown. I saw a lot of those little tiny slip things that the great programs don't do, right? We just talked about Alabama for for a while. Alabama lost, but I thought they were fundamentally sound. I thought they were better prepared than they looked last year. Georgia doesn't make the small mistakes. Michigan doesn't make the small mistakes. Texas, at least last night, doesn't make the small mistakes. Texas A&M did the little stuff, the stuff between winning and losing, the stuff between being six and six and nine and three. That is the difference. And so because of it, I know it feels early to have the Jimbo Fisher conversation, and it just might be. Like, it might be a little too early to talk Jimbo Fisher, but in a lot of ways, it's not. $90 million guaranteed extension a few years ago, went 5-7 and seven last year, and we all agreed. He had the hottest seat in college football coming into 2023. And so I don't think it's too early. And I think the question becomes, like, What is his future? What has to happen? What is the ceiling and what is the floor for him keeping this job? Now, the good thing for Jimbo Fisher, that's a lot of money they're going to have to pay him. The buyout on this contract is absurd. The buyout on this contract is still, even after this year, if he survives till the end, $75 million guaranteed. That is just an absurd amount of money. And I know that Texas A&M people think, oh, you know, well, they got the money. They'll figure it out. You understand how much money it's going to cost to get rid of Jimbo Fisher after this year? $75 million plus assistant coaches. Some of them are on multi-year contracts. Plus, you got to pay a new coach probably $8 to $10 million a year. And then, oh, by the way, you got to pay his assistant coaches. It's a lot of money. Plus, they're doing like $200 million in facility upgrades. And so Jimbo Fisher, his only saving grace, it might be a little bit of the John Calipari effect at Kentucky, is like eventually there's only so much money to go around. And so because of it, I, I like, I, like 
I, I think he's probably going to be okay if the, if the floor doesn't absolutely fall out. What is the floor falling out? Well, they went five and seven last year. You go five and seven, you're done. I think six and six, you're probably done. I think seven and five is where you start to get to that gray area where you can say, look, two game win improvement. Keep me around for one more year to coach that 2022 recruiting class as juniors. I don't know that seven and five will save you. I do think eight and four will. Um, but it is fascinating, right? It is fascinating that we're talking about $75 million that he would still be owed after this season. And so I think AM and their 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 administration and their boosters are praying that he can somehow get to eight and four. Now, the saving grace if you're Texas AM, and by the way, I'm not sitting here promising they're gonna go eight and four. I tried to promise you that things were improved, that things were better, that things are different, that things are this, that things are that. But at the same time, I will say this. The good news is SEC West is kind of weird right now, right? Alabama doesn't have a quarterback as of right now. We just talked about it. Uh, what else? LSU didn't look very good against Florida State. Auburn, you get at home. Arkansas, you get on a neutral field. And so Ole Miss, you know, you got to go to Ole Miss. Well, so you got to win at some point somewhere on the road. So the good news is the SEC doesn't feel that overwhelming. You do have a road game at Tennessee and a cross-division game. You get South Carolina at home. But, man, you got to turn things around in a hurry. Now, the good news is, like I said, schedule is, is, is pretty manageable going forward. The next four, no true road games. Next four, Louisiana Monroe at home. Two weeks from now, you get Auburn at home. You got to win that one. And I like Hugh Freeze, but you got to win that one. Then you get Arkansas and Dallas, Alabama at home, at Tennessee before the bye. I know Bama's, you know, whatever. But, man, you got to go like three and one during that stretch. You cannot lose to Auburn at home. Jimbo Fisher, man, I tried to believe. I tried to trust. I tried to say that Bobby Petrino was the difference. And I was made to look stupid yet again. Really quickly, let me take a few moments and let's give some credit to Miami here. Because Miami was the better team. And Miami, I'll say this. I think that Miami made me reevaluate one thing in college football. And the one thing that Miami made me reevaluate was the idea of what an offseason can do in this era, even for teams that are a little bit more established. Right? We've talked a lot about Colorado flipping an entire roster. We've talked about USC last year, LSU adding a million transfers. But for Miami, what's interesting about this team, it was actually year one into year two that they made their big sweeping changes. Lincoln Riley did it before year one. Brian Kelly did it before year one. Deion Sanders did it before year one. Mario Cristobal did it before year two. Top 10 recruiting class, but then also killed in the portal. Multiple starters on that offensive line are kids that came out of the portal. Multiple starters on defense are kids that came out of the portal. And so I look at Miami and I say, this thing is further along faster because of the portal and because of the offseason. Now, part of it is a couple other things. One, and I've said this consistently, Manny Diaz left more talent on that roster than people give him credit for. The year before Manny, the year Manny Diaz got fired, it kind of coincided with Mario Cristobal being a hot name at Oregon, leading them to the Pac-12, or uh, I don't think they won the Pac-12 that year. I think they, you know, the Pac-12 runner-up, whatever. But they were in the top 10 going into the final week of the season or the final month of the season, whatever, before they lost to Utah. So Mario Cristobal was the hot candidate. You had to get him if you were Miami. And I, I think Manny Diaz probably bluntly 
left more talent than people give him credit for. You go back to Saturday's game, that James Williams kid, the safety, he's a beast. He was recruited by Manny Diaz, finished Saturday's game with, uh, let's look at the stat line for him really quick, nine tackles, five solo tackles, safety, big, physical. I don't want to do the Sean Taylor comparisons, but he kind of reminded me of Sean Taylor running all over the field. Um, you know, the, the, some of the kids that had been, some of the kids on the defensive line, I thought that were very, very, very good, uh, were left over by Manny Diaz, uh, the big Leonard Taylor kid, five, former five-star left over by Manny Diaz. And then of course, you know, who else was left over by Manny Diaz, Tyler Van Dyke, Tyler Van Dyke, as I said, quarterback from the state of Connecticut was awesome as a true, as a freshman two years ago, not good a season ago and much improved this year. So part of it is the portal. Part of it is Mario Cristobal. Part of it is the previous coaching staff uh, left left things pretty good. It's also, by the way, the fact that Mario Cristobal, I think very, to his credit, identified like, wait a second now, that offense was a mess last year. He made a mistake with the Josh Gaddis hire. Josh Gaddis was the offensive coordinator. He was fired, and he seemed Tyler Van Dyke more comfortable. And so for Miami, again, bluntly, this completely changes what I think the ceiling is for this team. Still have some work to do. They weren't super effective running the ball. Certainly have to clean up mistakes and penalties. But all of a sudden, you look at their schedule. Next three, Bethune-Cookman at home, at Temple, Georgia Tech at home. You better be 5-0 and going to the back half of the schedule because the back half of the schedule does get much tougher at North Carolina, Clemson at home, at NC State, at Florida State. Those are all really good teams. But Miami, credit where it's due. I was dead wrong. I picked AM to win this game. I thought Miami, it would be more of a process, but Mario Cristobal in year two gets that signature win. Now, you got to build on the momentum here because you got three more games that you should win, you should dominate. Now go out and do it, Mario Cristobal. All right, quick break, come back. We are going to talk about Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, the rest of everything that happened in week two. And oh, by the way, Mel Tucker, boy, oh boy, oh boy, is there a story there. That's next. Quick break, be right back. All right, everybody. I'm back. Gonna be back. Gonna be back. I do want to switch gears. Let's get to some of the other games from Saturday. And let's start with the big one that we were all excited for. I'm, of course, talking about Nebraska traveling to Folsom Field to take on the 1 0 Colorado Buffaloes. So, look, before we even get into the game, give me 30 seconds on a side tangent here. I don't think I have ever seen a one-off season turnaround, not from a win-loss perspective, not from a talent perspective, but from a fan interest and excitement perspective, like what we saw at Colorado on Saturday. I mean, it's one thing to win games, hire the right coach, do whatever. But Colorado is a school that literally couldn't give away tickets last year. And to see Big Noon kickoff there, to see fans lining up at 6, 7, 8 a.m. to be at the front and, and, and to be part of the celebration to see the excitement when Ralphie ran out of the tunnel. It was unbelievable. It speaks to even the off-the-field excitement that Coach Prime created and has created. At the same time, off-the-field excitement is great, but on-the-field results are ultimately what matters. And this was an interesting game, right? It was an interesting game because after a week of hype and excitement, you took care of TCU last week, and then you become the talk of all things sports, all things sports media. And so the big question was, how would Colorado respond? How would they handle the excitement, 
the belief that they can actually win. They were a 20 and a half point underdog last week. Now they're a three point favorite. Well, turns out they actually handled it pretty well. Final score 36 to 14 Colorado wins. But I do think that we learned one very interesting thing about them. It is that on a day where they did not play well, and we're going to get into that momentarily. They were still able to win convincingly going away. By the way, if you didn't see the game, Nebraska, that second touchdown came late in the game when the game was essentially over. And so this was a much different game than TCU. Let's get into it. Let's break it down. But again, I do think we learned one very important thing about these Buffaloes. Speaking of the game, let's get into it because this one was just totally different than TCU from the beginning. TCU last week, we all watched it. And that was just your old fashioned uh, shootout at the OK Corral, right? Like it was just score after score after score matching this, this, that, the other thing. I think we forget because Colorado won. There were three different times where they were down in that game and had to rally to come back and win or rally to come back, get the lead and ultimately win. This was not that on Saturday. If you watch the game, I actually give Matt Rule a lot of credit. I know people are kind of mad at him about the whole Jeff Sims situation but he put together the game plan to beat Colorado. It is exactly what we talked about on Friday's Aaron Torres pod. Run the football, be effective, keep that offense off the field, and then when that offense is on the field, bring pressure to Shador Sanders, get him off rhythm, get his timing off, because we've said all offseason, that offensive line for Colorado is probably one of their weaknesses. And so to Nebraska's credit, that's what they did, and for about, Two and a half quarters, Colorado would, I don't want to say they were shook, but they were certainly uncomfortable. It's 0-0 after the first quarter. It is 13-0 at halftime, mainly because Jeff Sims couldn't take care of the football, three turnovers in the first half. But where I want to give Colorado credit, it wasn't pretty early on. Nebraska was able to, um, you know, kind of, again, get that offense out of rhythm. Where I think we need to give Colorado a little bit of credit, though, is that when they smelled a little blood in the water, they took full advantage. Third quarter, they come out, they know Nebraska's, they don't want to put too much on Jeff Sims' plate because what if he makes a mistake and all of a sudden they hit turbo and they hit go. And from there, the offense looked much better. It was far from perfect. They put up, what is that, 23 second half points, four scoring drives, and they get that victory 36-14 to again in a game where Nebraska uh, or excuse me, where Nebraska really did keep them off kilter for a lot of it. And so really what we could talk about in this game, the biggest thing that I learned is exactly what I said to lead the segment. It is that on a day where things do not go right, where things are not perfect, where you're not sneaking up on anybody, where Shador Sanders does feel pressure. He was sacked eight times in this game where you can't establish the run early. What I was so impressed by was I never saw this team get down. I never saw this team get frustrated. And I saw this team stay poised until they smelled their opportunity, Till, as I said, they smelled that blood in the water and they took advantage. And I know what a lot of people say, oh, it's Nebraska. Nebraska stinks. They turned the ball over too much. And I totally get that. I do. This was like, a, 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 I'm not even going to grade Nebraska. Maybe we'll talk about them to end this segment. But at the same time, listen. You can only take you can only take advantage of mistakes if you force them. You can only take advantage of mistakes if the other team falls into them. And so for me, I'm not going to discredit Colorado because Nebraska couldn't get out of their own way. And again, at the same time, it's about weathering the storm. And I think it's also, in my opinion, about realizing where this Colorado program has come from. Like, I think it's easy now. They're 2-0. 
the, the back-to-back wins over power conference teams in the out-of-conference. I think it'd be easy to sit there and say, oh, yeah, I mean, well, Nebraska stinks. They turned the ball over a million times. You're right. They did. And Colorado certainly has some things to clean up. Next week, they play Colorado State, but then it's to Oregon uh, the on, on September 23rd. So Colorado clearly has a lot of things to clean up. Nobody's arguing that. But I also think we have to understand who this team is and where they came from. This was a team that went 1-11 last year, okay? And as we talked about in the preseason, it wasn't just that they were bad. They were abysmal pretty much across the board. I said it in the preseason. This team ranked in the bottom five nationally in scoring offense and scoring defense. Bottom five in scoring offense and scoring defense. So it's one thing like, you know, you go back to say like the old school Texas Tech Cliff Kingsbury teams that were terrible on defense, but at least they could score the football. At least they could score points. Colorado couldn't do anything on either side of the ball. They couldn't run it. They couldn't pass it. They couldn't defend it. They couldn't do anything. And so to see this team in a game where they did not play well, where they were on their heels, where Nebraska put together the right game plan to stay poised, to stay calm, to pull away and get that 36-14 win, I am so impressed. And so when I look at the big picture of of this Colorado team, I got to be blunt. It's a lot about what we talked about on Wednesday's Aaron Torres pod. I think the ceiling of this team in two weeks has completely changed, right? Like, like, like literally two weeks ago, we're talking about is Colorado, is their over under win total absurd at three and a half? Now they're two and oh, they got Colorado state next week. They are going to be three and oh, going into Oregon two weeks from now. I assume college game day will be there or big noon or maybe both. I don't even know. But I bring it up because this is now a team. They're going to start 3-0. and And again, you start to look at the schedule. I'm not saying there's a t- they're going 12-0. and That's not what I'm saying at all. But you start to look at the schedule. They're beating Stanford. They're beating Arizona State. Um, you look at Utah struggling on Saturday without Cam Rising. I don't think they're necessarily going to beat Utah because I think Utah is physical and tough. But I don't think if Cam Rising doesn't come back quickly, I don't think that is like an automatic, no doubt about it, you know, whatever. Like, like, do I think that Utah is probably going to have success against them? I do. But by the end of the year, who, who's to say what Utah will look like, et cetera? Again, you go on down the list. Uh, UCLA. I like UCLA, but they're starting a true freshman at quarterback. Uh, it's not as though the Rose Bowl is going to be this brutal environment. And so for me, with Colorado, what this says to me is plain and simple. The ceiling of this team is so much different because of the fact that they are so much better early than I expected, right? Like, like I think we all thought they could get to that four wins, but a couple things. One, I don't think most of us thought, even me, I thought they were better than people thought. I didn't think they'd look this crisp offensively early, especially against TCU. I didn't think they'd be this poised in adversity, which they were. And I didn't think they would be this good 2-0 and going into this third week game against Colorado State. And so my last thought for Colorado, I think they're making a bowl game this year. And if they make a bowl game this year, I I take the back. I'm almost certain they're going to make a bowl game this year. And if they make a bowl game, that is an incredible testament and an incredible turnaround to Deion Sanders, Coach Prime in year one. My last thought from the Colorado perspective, this. You understand that this is probably the least talented team that Deion Sanders will ever have at Colorado. Now, I get it. You also have a first rounder in Shador Sanders. There's no guarantee that you're going to have a quarterback this good anytime in the near future. But at the same time, we talked about the recruiting on uh, uh, on Friday, Aaron Wright, Aaron Wrong, and we did a segment on YouTube. Number one quarterback in America 
is visiting Colorado in a couple weeks. And if you don't think that recruiting is going to be through the roof after kids watch the last couple games, you're out of your freaking mind. This is a team that was already good in the portal. Now, given an offseason, you mean to tell me every kid that enters the portal, they're going to be begging to hear from Colorado in the same way that kids beg to hear from Alabama or USC or Ohio State or whoever. And so the portal is going to be popping. The quality of player is going to be popping. The quality of high school player is going to be popping. Again, I understand, by the way, that it's a long season, but this is not going to be a two and 10 team. This is going to be a team that in year one, when they were projected to win three to four games, is probably going to win six to seven minimum. And so I look at this team, I look at this program, and I cannot be more impressed. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every Every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over a hundred social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S. excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. So look, here's the deal. Outside of everything we talked about, Texas, Bama, A&M, Miami, Colorado, there were other things that happened in college football that on a normal day probably would worth would be worth discussing. Washington State smacking Wisconsin at home. Uh, Oregon winning on the road at Texas Tech. How about this? Coming out of the week, we now have eight teams in the Pac-12 currently ranked in the top 25. That seems inconceivable, yet it is. And it just speaks to it was an awesome day of football. But there was something that broke late on Saturday night. Uh, and there was obviously a development on Sunday. And I want to save it for the end of the show because bluntly, it's a very serious topic with very serious allegations, all of that. And I am very aware that a lot of you listen to this show in the car with family, with kids. Um, and I just want to say, like, next 10, 12 minutes, going to be a very serious conversation, very serious things. And just be aware of what uh, what you're listening to and, and, and how you're listening to it here over the next few minutes. But with that said, I do want to wrap with this wild, wild, wild Mel Tucker story. Uh, one that I'm sure all of you are probably at least a little bit familiar with here uh, coming out of the weekend. But the bottom line is, I'll tell you, I'll just give you kind of my version of, of how I kind of experienced this in real time. But it was wild. I was hosting Fox Sports Radio Saturday night. We're on until 2 a.m. Eastern time. And at little after probably midnight, probably a little bit before 1, 1, 1 a.m. Eastern, you see a headline. It says Mel Tucker accused of sexual harassment. And so my first reaction is boosters unhappy with that contract that they gave him. They're trying to throw something on his plate to get out of that contract. That was my initial thought. I'm sure a lot of you felt the same way. And then it was about 2 a.m. Eastern time that a report came out from USA Today 
that had some jarring, jarring, jarring details. And as a matter of fact, it's actually the exact opposite. It's not that Michigan State is trying to get out of his contract, but in many ways, uh, it feels like they've been trying to cover this thing up because it is a scandal of epic proportions. And so I want to kind of tell you what happened, what the reaction was on Sunday, what's next for Michigan State. But again, one final time, very serious stuff in here. So be careful who you're listening with. Um, The allegations basically stem from this. Okay, So there is a woman. Her name is Brenda Tracy. Um, and she is very well known. She is an advocate of uh, victims of sexual assault. Okay, uh, she was a woman who herself dealt with vict- uh, sexual assault when she she was like I'm just going to say it. She was gang raped when she was a younger woman. Um, she survived, and she has become an advocate and an outspoken uh, you know advocate on behalf of sexual assault victims. Part of what she does, she goes to all of these major colleges, all of these major campuses, and especially within athletic departments, speaks to teams, usually teams, you know, men's basketball and and, and football, um, just explaining, hey, like, like, no means no. This is my experience. This is the torment that I've been through. Um, and just treat women with ba- basic respect, right? I mean, I think we all kind of understand that, but that is who she is and what she does. And so Michigan State, over the course of the last three, four years, the football program has brought her in multiple times to speak to the team. Uh, 2021, I believe, was the first one. They brought her back at one point for the spring game where she was an unofficial team captain. And so she clearly developed a rapport with the Michigan State football program. Well, at some point, um, you know, Mel Tucker, the head coach at Michigan State, um, developed, uh, you know, a little bit of a one-on-one, what he believed to be a consensual, uh, you know, something that was more than a friendship. And there are allegations in the report from USA Today that there was two, three times that he invited her out places by herself, one-on-one. She said no. But ultimately, what this whole thing stems from is this. And again, we're going to continue with the graphic, honest conversation. It was that at one point he called her on the phone. Um, and his version diverges from her version, et cetera. But essentially, um, phone sex occur. Mel Tucker, and I, I can't believe I'm using this word on this show, but I have to use it because there's no other way to describe it. He masturbated on the phone while she was on the other end. He claims it's consensual. She claims it was certainly not, and she was very uncomfortable with it. She hangs up, and this ultimately ends up getting reported to Michigan State. As we found out on Sunday, Michigan State found out in December they launched a Title IX investigation, independent investigators, and here's the part that's important. Mel Tucker admits that the call happened, admits that he masturbated, and basically just contests the part about the fact whether she consented to it or not. Bottom line, let me let me just say this and let's get into what happened on Sunday. Bottom line, can't do that pretty much ever, and obviously it led to what happened on Sunday or Mel Tucker, according to a press conference uh, uh, from at Michigan State at 5 p.m. Eastern, has been suspended without pay uh, pending the conclusion of the Title IX investigation. He will go there. There's kind of a, a, a hearing, if you will, in early October. But let me just say this. OK, I've been covering college sports a long time. You see similar stories pop up, and this is obviously unique unto itself. I am here to tell you right now. Mel Tucker has coached his last game at Michigan State. Mel Tucker will ultimately be fired. And in a lot of ways, I'll I'll just be blunt. This reminds me, you know what this actually reminds me of? And I'm not comparing one to the other. 
But do you remember when Chris Beard got arrested, the Texas basketball coach, back in last December? If you remember at the time, he was put on paid administrative leave. Why is that? It is so the school can continue an investigation. They can give him due process, but then ultimately they can fire him for cause without paying him the full contract. And so for Mel Tucker, Michigan State is dotting the I's, crossing the T's, making sure that legally they do everything they can so that he can't come back and say he didn't get due process and he was unfairly fired. But once that hearing is done, once all the facts officially come to light in a public forum, he will be done as Michigan State head coach. He is never coaching a game at Michigan again. And it is worth noting multiple reports came out on uh, on Sunday afternoon. Uh, Harlan Barnett, I believe, is the name of uh, the defensive backs coach who is taking over on an interim basis. And I saw Brett McMurphy even reported that former coach Mark D'Antonio will come back in kind of an advisory unnamed role. Now, in terms of the reaction to all of the news, and I'm sorry for that long setup, but it felt necessary. In terms of the reaction to the news, listen, well, I'll just say bluntly, inexcusable. Like, like, and, and I, I don't feel like I should have to do this every time, but a couple things. We talked about this with Chris Beard, and I'll talk about it again with Mel Tucker. I understand that everyone is entitled to due process. I understand that everybody is entitled to let the facts come out. What is indisputable right now based on the facts we have and stuff is subject to change is that according to USA Today, in a investigation, Mel Tucker admitted this call happened and the masturbation happened, and it just comes down to was it consensual, was it not, how much was it, how much was it not. At the same time, I'm sorry you can't do this, and I'm sorry. I, and to be clear, for people who are new to me or my, my show or my this or my that, I'm not a moralist. I do dumb stuff all the time. I have a wife. I'm not a perfect husband. I make mistakes all the time. I do. I did something dumb like two, three days ago. My wife was furious at me and she had every right to be. I'm not perfect. But at the same time, you cannot do this if you're anyone, but especially if you are a head football coach. You are the face of a university. You are the face of your football program. You are the highest paid employee at your university. And keep in mind, you have brought in this woman to talk to your 85 players about respecting women, giving them their, you know, respecting women, respecting women, doing what's right, not whatever. And for you to do this, for you to presume there's some sort, like you just cannot do this ever. And so there's absolutely no excuse. So Mel Tucker isn't going to survive. He will ultimately be fired. And I think it's worth noting the school itself is important here as well. I'm not saying this behavior is ever okay anywhere. I'm not saying it'd be okay at any other school in the country. But at the same time, it's especially true at Michigan State. We all know that Michigan State, tragically, unfortunately, was home for decades to Larry Nasser. Larry Nasser was the U.S. gymnastics coach who also doubled as the Michigan State, one of the, the team doctors at Michigan State, who we later found out was sexually abusing a lot of young women in the U.S. gymnastics program and at Michigan State. And so for this school to have another situation where you have sexual harassment, making a woman feel uncomfortable, obviously, you know, the Nasser situation is different, but it falls under the same umbrella. You cannot act like this. And if you're Michigan State, I think the next logical question, and I'm not a fire everybody guy, but the fact that this happened in December, the fact they found out about this, 
and they waited until the day it became public for them to actually put Mel Tucker on administrative leave, some people are going to have to pay for that. And some people are going to have to answer tough questions as to whether they should have their jobs as well. Because again, I get due process, but this was something you found out eight, nine, 10 months ago, whatever it was, the fact that you tried to hide it, the fact that you tried to not to try to let the process play out without making it public instead of just suspending Mel Tucker at the time. It's a bad, 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 bad look. It just is. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but what I do know in a situation like this, at this particular school, in this particular situation, you cannot wait nine months and hope it doesn't come out. And then, of course, it comes out right as football season starts. So we'll see what happens. That hearing is in early October. Once that hearing happens, I suspect Mel Tucker will be fired for cause and uh, not get any of his contract. So in terms of the sports-specific angles to conclude here, a couple things stand out. One, I don't want to make light. I don't want to make light or make, I don't want anyone thinking that I'm mocking or whatever the whole situation. But Mel Tucker just lost $80 million guaranteed. He had $80 million left on his contract because he couldn't stay out of trouble. And he, like, he, it's just so dumb. You're married. You have a family. You do this. Your whole life is going to come crashing down. Maybe there are guys getting away with this stuff, but I just can't even imagine $80 million. Your kids, kids, kids are set up for the rest of their lives. Even if you're a terrible football coach, you're going to you're going to get paid every last dollar as long as you don't do something to get fired for cause. And you do it. Again, I don't want to dismiss the severity of what he is accused of. I don't want to dismiss the severity of what this young woman went through many years ago and what she's probably going through now. But from a strictly like, what are you doing perspective? Just stay away. Just go home. Go home to your wife. You don't need to do this. It's just so mind boggling to me. And then lastly, from a football perspective, I think it'll be fascinating to see what Michigan State does next. Now, again, in the grand scheme, is this what's most important? Absolutely not. I don't want to make it sound like this is what I think matters. But at the same time, Mel Tucker is never going to coach a game again. And Michigan State is going to have a coaching search probably in December. Fascinating to think about, especially because of this. $80 million just got cleared up. All that money you were going to pay Mel Tucker is now going to be available for you to pay somebody else. And so for Michigan State, it'll be fascinating because you can pay the next guy seven, eight, nine million million a year if you want to because you're not going to be paying Mel Tucker that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Obviously, next year, that full Big Ten contra TV contract starts. So you're going to be making 50, 60, 70 million a year. And so just the question becomes, who is interested in all that? The name that I heard on Sunday, I made a few phone calls. Now, it's not going to make Michigan State fans very happy. I heard the second this came out, Pat Narduzzi from Pitt, the head coach, is already trying to angle his way back in. Was the longtime coordinator under Mark D'Antonio, left. I think he's been a candidate maybe in previous years. I think he sees where things are going with the ACC. I think he sees that Pitt is a tough place in modern college football to win. He's angling for it. I've heard the name Jim Leonard, the former Wisconsin defensive coordinator, was Wisconsin's interim head coach last year. A very successful former player. And then I think you're going to get the big, big names, and you're going to try to convince somebody to come for the right amount of money. Remember, we're entering a world. The SEC and Big Ten are going to be playing completely different ball when it comes to money 
and the money that you can offer your head coaches. So we'll see what happens next. And we'll see who could be the next head coach. Um, And by the way, we'll do updates on this as it comes out. But I think right now, the thing is Mel Tucker. And I just cannot believe how dumb he is. And I'm sorry. I'm I'm an innocent until proven guilty. I'm a due process kind of guy. But he acknowledged this call happened. He acknowledged the actions that she accused him of actions. And now it's just a he said, she said over how consensual it was. This guy's never going to coach again at Michigan State just cost himself $80 million. And obviously on the much more serious topic, cannot believe, um, you know, this, uh, whatever, I can't believe that he did this to this young woman. Um, and I feel awful that she is in this situation right now. All right. I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Tour sports podcast. First Monday of the season, obviously outside of last week when we had the Tuesday show. So a lot of ground covered on this show, but it is time for me to get out of here. If you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod, Aaron Torres YouTube channel blowing up, closing in on 25,000 subscribers. Make sure to subscribe there. Um, And ultimately, that's really it. Thank you guys for your support. Thank you guys for sticking with me through a busy Monday morning. So much going on. Time for me to get out of here. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick, UF Ed. Unblock me, bro. Shout out to uh, Bob Barker. RIP Bob Barker. Have your pets spayed or neutered. I'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode of the Air Tours Pod. Cannot even believe where we're going to be by then. Have a good Monday and Tuesday, everybody. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.